0: Next Sunday is Pentecost, and Pentecost is the day of all days for spiritual interaction with God. And I don't mean the once a year day, I mean the day in Acts chapter 2, the day that uh, God poured out His Holy Spirit on all flesh. I want to explain what that is and what we are remembering next Sunday and what we are not just remembering, but practicing now. So, the Hebrew word for the holiday that was instituted by God while the Israelites were in the wilderness is Shavuot. It, in English, translates as the Feast of Weeks. It is also called the Feast of the Harvest, or the Feast of the First Fruits. And in Greek, in the language of the world, In Jesus' time in the New Testament, it gets called Pentecost, which means 50, because Shavuot is 50 days after Passover. Next Sunday, it will have been 50 days since Easter and Passover. Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 15. God says, You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, the day after you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. That's a measurement of flour. They shall be fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer it with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. And then he goes on to describe what the priests will do. But God says 50 days after Passover, there will be this feast. And in Hebrew, again, it's Shavuot. And in English, that's feast of weeks. It's Fifty days, so they counted seven weeks. And in Hebrew, the word for week is the same as the word seven. So in English, we get translated, you shall count a week of weeks. But God said you shall count seven sevens or seven weeks. It's all the same thing. So it's called the Feast of Weeks because it's a week of weeks or seven weeks after Passover. Then add one day, the next day, the 50th day is Shavuot and it's the first fruits. Now that is coming up next Sunday, Pentecost, where in Greek they just called it 50. The Jews of Jesus' day, they did use some Aramaic and Hebrew words but most of them spoke Greek and they just called it 50. So Pentecost is what we get in the New Testament. It's all the same thing, just different names. It's the feast of the first fruits. God said, "You will bring the the first fruits grain into my house and offer it as an offering, and you will burn it. The animals and the grain, you will burn it. The, mostly, usually, the priests got to eat the offerings, but with this one, God says it's mine." Uh, he said to the people, You are not allowed to eat anything you harvest until you bring the first fruits of Shavuot to me. In Exodus uh, 34 is where that is. He said, You will bring, you, when you get your harvest, you can't eat any of it until you come to my temple and bring me the offering. So I talked to you back in January about the importance God places on the first fruits, that that is our tithe, is the first 10%. So they were so careful about it that the farmer when he when his grain would start to ripen, I don't know if you've noticed about the wheat fields around in the valley, but it doesn't all turn golden at the exact same moment. Right? Some of it turns begins to turn white. And some of it's still a little green. So to make sure they were obeying God, they were so careful about it, they would go out with a rope and stakes and they would rope out 10% of their field, the first 10% that turned white uh, as it began to ripen. And then so then when, when it was all ripe, they still knew what the first fruits were. I don't know that you know they needed to be that legalistic about it, but they wanted to be that careful to obey God, to give them him the actual first 10%, the first fruits. So they would bring that in and they would celebrate. And then in Deuteronomy 16, God tells them that this is one of three feasts, Passover and first fruits or Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. There were three feasts where every male in Israel had to present himself at the, ta- at the temple in Jerusalem. That's important later when we get to Acts chapter 2. But all of the... Holidays were to be celebrated, but these three, Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles, was to every man, of course he was to bring his family, but this is how God puts it, every man is to present himself at the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, they would normally go to the temple and offer their offering, and then God In every description, in Deuteronomy and Exodus and Leviticus, God calls it a feast. So they would bring a lot of other food along with them on their journey, and there would be a huge party in Jerusalem where they would celebrate the harvest that God was giving them. They would bring in their first fruits. They would bring in a lot of other food and wine and All of the provision that God had blessed them with and there would be a massive hundreds of thousands of people feast in Jerusalem in the streets around the temple and in the city on the day of Pentecost or Shavuot. Usually it involved reading the book of Ruth because the book of Ruth happens during the harvest. So it's very traditional for the Jews to read the book of Ruth to their family on the day of Pentecost as they have this feast. And uh, usually, God actually commands it in Exodus 34. He says, you bring with your family when you come, you bring... The aliens that live around you, meaning the non-Israelites, you bring widows, you bring the poor, you bring anyone that doesn't have a family, you bring everybody along with you and you let them eat at your table, at your feast. It was everybody in Israel stops the harvest, comes to Jerusalem, worships God, celebrates with a great big feast and then goes back the next day and goes back to work yeah bringing in the rest of the harvest all right and then at the end of harvest was the feast of tabernacles which we're not going to talk about today Uh, God says when you're all done you take a week-long vacation gay God God loves vacations you know Jesus is Jesus is continually going off into the wilderness to get away yeah, and so God is a God of vacations. Yeah, he says, when you're done with the harvest, take a week-long vacation. And it also was a great big party. It was a feast. You build yourself this little hut out in your field that's been cut and you just bring all your family in and all your neighbors and you go around and you visit all your friends and neighbors and you bring them food and wine and, and everybody just have fun and celebrate my goodness and my bounty that I gave you this year. That's tabernacles. I got to come back to my topic. Okay, so that's what's going on. Fifty days after Passover in the New Testament. Jesus died the day before Passover. He was crucified the day before Passover. He was the Passover lamb that God offered to himself to mark the door of our hearts so that when the angel of death comes, we are passed over. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. A number of days later, I didn't look all these numbers up, but a number of days later, he appears over and over through those days to the apostles and the disciples, and then he, he ascended into heaven. But 50 days after Passover, 50 days after he was crucified, is the day of Pentecost, and we come to Acts chapter 2. So let's turn there, if you, again, if you have your book Bible and you want to read along, or you may just may listen to me. Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost, And there were, dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. Now you know why they're all there. Now you know why there's such a crowd when this happens. When this sound occurred, the multitude came together, and they were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. They were all amazed, and they marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all of these Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those are all Iranians and Iraqis, Tajiks and Afghanis. Those who are dwelling in Mesopotamia, that's Iraqis, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, that's people from Turkey and further north, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own language, the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? But others mocked them, saying, They're just full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. These are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, being loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Verse 25. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover my flesh will also rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Hades nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And then Peter continues on his sermon and I want to jump to verse 37. When they heard this They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. That's geography and time. We are the ones who are afar off, 2,000 years far off. And it's still to us. As many as the Lord our God will call. If you are called, that promise is for you. That you be baptized, repent of your sin and be baptized in the name of Jesus and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yes. Verse 40, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his words were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayer. All right. All right. God in the Old Testament says, you will celebrate the Passover where I save you from sin and death with the blood of a lamb and 50 days later when the harvest begins you will bring in your first fruits and you will offer them to me and you will burn them with fire. 1400 years later Jesus is crucified for Passover and John says he is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the one whose blood is upon us. We are marked so that we are not killed by the angel of death when destruction comes. And 50 days later, on the celebration of the first fruits, the first church is lit on fire. It is absolutely not an accident. That God says exactly 50 days after Passover, you will celebrate this. And we know that Paul says everything in the Old Testament was set up to show a picture of who Jesus was and to prove it was him when he came. 50 days after Passover is the beginning of the harvest and the first fruits are lit on fire. Come on. (laughs) God offers his own offering of first fruits and lights his people on fire. But it's the fire of the Holy Spirit that doesn't consume the bush. It just lights it on fire. <laughs> Come on. So now you know why the crowd was there. The crowd is there on the day of Pentecost to celebrate this Shavuot, this Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Firstfruits. And God says, I'm changing the story a little bit. It's still Pentecost. It's still Shavuot. But, but I'm going to light you on fire as my offering to myself and there the people are there to have a big feast and so that's why when the people in the street at 9 a.m. the street is full of people that aren't at work why is there a huge crowd at 9 a.m. in the street because they're all there for a celebration and when they see the apostles and the early disciples there's 150 of them who've been in the upper room praying all night the wind blows through the room and they see fire on top of each one of them. Remember I told you a few weeks ago, Psalm says the spirit of a man is the candle of the Lord. Yes. The Lord lights, when you get born again, the Lord lights your candle. And he puts light and life back in your spirit that was dead before you came into Christ. He lit everybody's candle. They're literally a walking, living candle with a tongue of fire on top of their head. And they spill out in the streets. It says the people in the street heard the noise. You've, maybe you have not heard a tornado before, but I have, and it does truly sound like a freight train It's heading towards your house. And the people heard the noise, they came out of the street, and then the apostles and the disciples, they spill out on the street, and they overcome with the presence of God. They are so excited and happy that the crowd thinks, oh, they've been up all night getting ready for the feast, and they're already drunk, because nobody's that happy unless you're drunk. It was not because they were being weird and stupid and chaotic. Hello? That happens a lot in a lot of expression of churches is just things go chaotic. That's not the Holy Spirit. They are full of joy that says specifically they were speaking words they didn't understand, but in the languages they were speaking, they were testifying of Jesus. They weren't babbling and stumbling around like they were drunk. It's just that's the interpretation of the rest of the crowd is these people are drunk already. So when you understand what they're doing, what the crowd is thinking, uh, their interpretation of what's going on begins to make a little more sense. And even God's symbolism in the whole thing and why he did it on this day begins to make a little more sense. So they come out of the room pumped, excited, overflowing with love and joy and the power of the holy spirit and they they begin to speak in tongues which the bible says it was not babel it wasn't meaningless syllables they were speaking in real languages yeah. they were speaking afghani and and iranian and iraqi and egyptian and libyan and these language and greek and all these other languages and the people who could hear them said we hear in our own language well Mostly, uh, especially in those days, after Alexander had conquered the whole Middle Eastern world, everybody spoke Greek, plus their own native tongue. So everyone could hear in their native tongue, but they could tell each other what they're hearing in Greek, for the most part. There might have been a few people there that didn't speak more than one language, but most everybody did. Speak more than one language. So they can. the crowd can testify to each other, and even the apostles and disciples can look at each other and, and say, we're all saying the same thing. Even though we're all speaking, I counted, there's 15 different languages listed. I'm trying to do several things. I'm trying to get you to understand what was going on at the time. I'm trying to undo uh, a lot of stereotypes of what this looked like that it looked like modern church services where it's just chaos. They were testifying of Jesus. That's the important thing. It was strange. It was foolish. It was a little bit scary. But it wasn't meaningless and it wasn't chaotic. It was meaningful. It was full of Jesus Christ. Whatever is really the Holy Spirit will be full of Jesus. It still might be a little scary. It still might border on being out of control. It still might uh, be really mysterious and weird, and the people who are full of pride will not like it. But it is always meaningful. It is not empty, wild displays of energy and emotion. There may be energy and emotion in it, but it isn't empty in energy and emotion, it's full of Jesus. I know a lot of you are all on board with this, but there's a lot of skeptics in the room too, so give, give me time to lay this out for them, okay? I've told you before that I grew up in a church where I was indoctrinated against all this. This is fake. It's emotion. It's the devil. It's, it's a lie, and I was taught to be scared of it and to stay away from it, and, and I have since learned that it is real and it is good, and that mostly it was just fear and pride on my part. But God proved on the day of Pentecost, as Peter said, he's fulfilling Joel chapter 2, where he says, I want to pour my spirit out on all flesh. I want to anoint every person with my holy fire, every person who will come to Jesus. So at the cross, the Holy Spirit came out from behind the ripped curtain. And I'd, 50 days later, he came, moved into his new temple, which is us. God wants to live inside of you. He lived in the back room of a tabernacle. He lived in the back room of a temple. And it's what he said to do. They weren't wrong to do that. But ultimately, his goal was to get back to what he had at the garden, which was communion with his creation. Yeah. To walk and talk face to face. To live with humanity. To live in humanity And we've. Spent several weeks on how the tabernacle is actually a model. Where in us does God live? You're not going to surgically go down there and find a place full of the Holy Spirit fire. He lives inside of us as in the outside, outer court of the tabernacle is our body. And then the inner court is our soul. And inside of that, in the very core of our being, it's not a physical place, but inside of us is the Holy Spirit. That's where he wants to move in and live. Yes. He still lives in the holiest of holies but it's inside of your soul, not inside of a tent or a building. He wants to live inside of you. He wants to interact with you, to touch you, to light you on fire, to purify you. He wants us to experience him, to be changed, to be filled with joy and love and power. He wants to be one with you. It was Jesus' most passionate, heartfelt prayer the night before he died. It's God make them one with each other and with you. He is not interested in us being religious or good or nice people. He wants to change us, right? Of course, we have to be nice and be moral, but that's not the goal. That's only the expression of what has happened. I want to read you a quote from C.S. Lewis from his book, Mare christianity Niceness which is a wholesome, integrated personality, is an excellent thing. We must try by every medical, educational, economic, and political means in our power to produce a world where as many people as possible are nice. Just as we must try to produce a world where we all have plenty to eat. But we must not suppose that even if we succeeded in making everyone nice, that we should have saved their souls. He says, if we succeed in making everyone nice, that does not mean anyone is saved. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world, and it might even be more difficult to save. For mere improvement is not redemption, though redemption always improves people here and now, but in the end... It will improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons. Not simply to produce better people of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of person. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better, but turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it has got its wings, it will soar over fences which could never have been jumped. And thus beat the natural horse at its own game. God is not interested in making you a better person. He's not interested in giving you a, a do-over to let you try again. He's not interested in Mitch 2.0. He is interested in making you something more, something more than human, actually. Because Second Corinthians 5:17 says, "If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation." The old things have passed away, behold all things have become new. That doesn't mean made new quality, it means something that did not exist, now exists. That's what happens when we come into Christ. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. Is that dead people were made alive. Not dead in body, but dead in spirit. God lit the fire in their candle. God lit His fire in the center of their being. The holiest place inside the core of their being became filled with God. And then God blew out from the inside out. He spilled over in love and joy, testimony of Jesus, and in Holy Spirit power. It was all about Jesus. But God radically transformed them. He did not just... Wash them clean from their old life and, and say, now try to do better. Be a good Christian. He said, I'm going to rearrange your DNA. Both Peter in 1 Peter and John in 1 John 3 says God has put his seed, and the word is sperma. God has put his chromosomes in us. We have become something we were not before Christ. If you are not in Christ, I invite you this morning to not just be washed clean, but to be completely changed, to be made new, to be lit on fire with the Holy Spirit of God. If you are in Christ, but you've never experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the fire of God lit in your heart, maybe you're a genuine believer and you want to know God and you try to feel the presence or to pray, but it doesn't seem like things are happening or things are alive, you don't hear God, let him light your fire. God's number one priority in us is to get rid of our pride and fear because those are the roots of all sin. So it's not surprising at all that he hides this in an experience that is foolish and scary. So he wants to know who really wants to know me. Who really wants to be a disciple. Who really wants to know God. It is mysterious. It's unexplainable. Jesus says only I can do it. And he told the disciples, wait and pray until I do it. So what is our responsibility? Wait and pray. We can't drum ourselves up into some emotional state where it happens. We can't please God enough to make him give it to us. We just wait and pray. Sometimes when I've prayed for people, something has happened on the spot. Usually it doesn't. Usually they go home and something happens that night or a few days later and they come back and say, wow. I know what you mean. If you've had that experience, you know what I mean. But if you have not, we would love to invite you to have God light your candle this morning, to God light you on fire. Next Sunday is Pentecost. I wanted to do this today. Actually, I did not want to do this today. The Holy Spirit made me do it. Like, God, why would we not do that next Sunday if that's Pentecost? I guess because he wants you to know what's coming and then to, to know why we what we're celebrating and why and and uh, what, we're, what we're supposed to be living and why. Let me pray for you and bless you. Don't be afraid. We're not going to start pounding you on the forehead, all right, all right? We're, we're just going to wait and pray. We're just going to wait and pray, and we'll see what God does. Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence in our worship this morning, Lord. Thank you for pouring out your gentleness, your goodness, your love, your comfort, your nurture, your care. Lord, I bless each person here whose heart desires you. Lord, each person who gets excited about your word, who gets excited about experiencing you, Lord, who wants to know you and walk with you all the days of their life. Lord, you know who those people are. I think it's nearly everyone in the room, but you know. Lord, I bless every person here, and I ask you the same thing we've been asking all morning, Lord, in all the songs that we sang as we've read your word, Lord, and as we've prayed, Lord, as we ask you again that you pour out your spirit, that you give us your presence, Lord, that we would know your holy fire burning in our hearts, that we would live righteously and purely, that you would empower us, Lord, to obey you and to love others, to have wisdom and truth for answers that the world needs, to have power in our tongues and our hands, Lord, so that we can be your agents of salvation and healing and truth. To Be, be your hands of love and comfort. and Everything that you need us to be, Lord. We want not to be practical atheists. We don't want to be religious. We want to know you. We want to have you living in our bodies. We want to be full of your joy and your love and your truth and your power. And I ask that you fall on us, individually and as a congregation, that you come with your holy love, your holy fire, your holy power, in Jesus' name.